Here it's five after we probably ought to get started. I know, having a great conversation there, I know. Someone may be watching online though and wondering when if we're gonna when I'm gonna start talking. I can't hear you. Yeah, we're gonna pray. <laughs> it's on, yes, we got it working. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to this uh, class number six in our discovery class. Let's begin with an Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, so tonight we're going to talk. We were less, we've gotten to Jesus, all right, in our historical back, in our historical walk through the faith. Yet last week we talked. Last week, last time we had a class, we talked about Jesus' teachings. What did Jesus teach, particularly in relation to the kingdom of God? That was his his big message. And so now we're going to talk about the next thing, the other thing Jesus did, and that was establish salvation. I'm sorry it's cold in here. I don't know who turned the heat down after our service today. <laughs> we had a mass at noon and somebody turned the heat down. Um, so the establishment of salvation, and that's one of those words that we toss around in church a lot. And we're gonna, before we get done with tonight, we're gonna have a, a discussion of the vocabulary, a church vocabulary of words like salvation, redemption, um, uh, was atonement, all these words that we toss around in church that, quite frankly, most people don't even know what they mean, but, you know, we grew up saying them, and so we don't even think about what they mean. It's just, you know, it's just something we, we kind of have an idea what it means we get to go to heaven. But um, so we, we'll talk about that vocabulary a little later on. But the first thing I want to talk about is this whole concept of the covenant in Christ's blood salvation through the blood of Jesus. Now, if you go to a, an evangelical church, like I grew up in an evangelical church, you learn all kinds of songs about the blood. And we sing about blood a lot. It's kind of gross when you think about it. But we sing, um, would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. That's right. Anybody else know that? Like, Vicki, we, we, you sing that song, right? You know the song. And we say, oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow. And all these great songs about blood that we sing. And it's really kind of gross. I mean, why do, we, why do we talk about the blood of Jesus and how it, does that affect salvation? Everybody bleeds, you know. And so why is it the blood of Jesus? Why does that make a difference in, in the state of the world? So let's talk first about what is this concept of a substitutionary death? Why does, how does one person or animal, you know, all the animal sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, how does one person or animal, the shedding of their blood make a difference for other people? And we really have to go all the way back to Noah to see the beginning of the institution of animal sacrifice. 
Now, prior to Noah, according to the Bible, prior to Noah, mankind was a vegetarian. They did, men didn't eat animals. At Noah, and according to the biblical narrative, uh, after Noah comes out of the ark, releases the animals, and suddenly he offers a sacrifice, and they eat an animal. I think it's a lamb that he offers. They sacrifice a lamb, and they eat that lamb. Well, okay, you think about it. In the context, in the context of a global flood, there's not much. There's not much else to eat. Everything's destroyed. You know, it's, just, it's, a, it's been a flood. It's like you know, it's like the great mudslide. You know, that uh, they have it in California every now and then. They had mudslides all over the up and down the west coast. And mudslide in Norway. Everything is destroyed by by this flood, by this mudslide. And so they decide to start eating animals. And um, in the narrative, in the biblical narrative, God says to Noah that he's allowed to eat animals. And so they sacrifice an animal and eat it. In a sense, every animal that we consume is sacrificed for us so that we can live, right? The cow dies so that we can have a hamburger or the, the, the pig dies so that we can have bacon. Uh, and we can live because the animal gave his life. I remember a preacher once saying, if you want to, everyone want to know the difference between a, an offering and total commitment, he says it, it all has to do with breakfast. The chicken, give, the chicken gives an offering, but the pig gives total commitment. You know? <laughs> but there is that sense. And any time we eat an animal, well, then that animal has sacrificed, has given up his life, so that we can live. And this concept is consistent across the world. Everywhere in the world, the practice of animal sacrifice and the understanding that that animal has sacrificed so we can live is consistent around the world. One of my favorite cultures is uh, the Blackfoot Indian culture. And they do a buffalo dance before they go out in the buffalo for a buffalo hunt. And that buffalo dance is all about their mythology of how the buffalo agreed to be food for the Indians. It's, it's a dance about the buffalo decided to give up his life so that we could eat them. And it was, uh, um, of course, the buffalo, I don't think, really know that they made that agreement. But nonetheless, that's what the mythology is. That's what the dance is. And, and all of the other Native American uh, tribes have some kind of similar um, ritual, similar uh, mythology about, you know, the animals that they kill to eat have given themselves for this act. It's a sacrificial act that they have. And they have ritual thanksgivings for the sacrifice of these animals so that they could eat. And this like I say, is consistent across all cultures everywhere. In Africa, in Asia, in Europe, everywhere you go, there is this consistent sense, belief, that we eat animals and they have agreed to it. They sacrifice, they offer themselves as a sacrifice. 
They give their lives so that we can live. And this develops in, becomes more and more ritualized as time comes on, and it develops into the blood sacrifice that we read so much about in the Old Testament. Um, this is true in the e Egyptian tradition as well as in the Hebrew tradition. And of course, a great deal of the Hebrew tradition grew out of the Egyptian tradition, the Egyptian tradition being one of the great inputs of the Hebrew tradition because they were there for 400 years. And Moses makes it very clear that the, the, the blood sacrifice is for the expiation, another one of those words we'll have to look at in a minute, for the sins of the people. So it's not just so that we can physically survive that the animal is sacrificed, but also it gives us spiritual life as well. Now remember when we talked about the Exodus, how the lamb was slain, it was sacrificed and eaten, and then they would take the blood of the lamb, they would spread it around the doorway, and then that uh, spared the lives of the Hebrew children the, the Egyptian priests who are going around sacrificing the Hebrew children, they'd see the blood and they'd say, oh, this, this house has already been taken care of, and they go on down to the next one. So the blood of the lamb becomes the Passover. The, the Hebrew homes were passed over by the marauding priests who were killing the uh, firstborn children across the land. On the Day of Atonement, which is when the sins of the nation are forgiven in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew tradition. They would take the animal, which was usually not a lamb. Usually the lamb was sacrificed for Passover. On the Day of Atonement, uh, a variety of animals would be sacrificed, a bull, a red heifer, a goat. But they would take the blood of the sacrificed animal and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant. You know, we all saw the movie, Indiana Jones finds the Ark, right? But the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat of God, it was in their concept that God sat on the Ark of the Covenant. It was his chair, it was his throne. And so they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animal on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. And that would be, that would affect the forgiveness of sins. So there's been a move here from, okay, this animal gave his life so that I could eat, give me physical life. Now the blood sacrifice is seen as giving us spiritual life. In fact, this is a quote from Leviticus. Um, the life of a creature is the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So this is the concept that the sacrifice gives us a spiritual life as well. Now, there's another aspect of this, and this is the use of blood in covenant. And some of you have been, I've, I've, I've taught on this before in a homily or two, but I'm gonna do it again, which means I have to get up and walk. Um, We see this in a number of cultures. We see this in Native American culture, concept of being blood brothers, where, where you slice your hands and you 
hold your hands together so that you pass, you, you share blood with each other. Not terribly sanitary, but this was something they did. I remember as a kid, my, my best friend and I decided we were going to do this. We we're going to become blood brothers. Anybody else decide this? We're going to do this. You're going to cut your hands and become blood brothers. We never quite got around to it. <laughs> we were going to do it, but it was just, but it was just a little bit too uh, too painful for us to get to. But the concept of using blood in a covenant, this was important. This is how two families would join together. We don't really have that in our society, in our culture. The closest thing we have is in marriage, where two families come together. A couple gets married, and then all their families are joined. You know, you have the in-laws, and, and, and when our world was less mobile, and people within the same town would marry you know, their, their, each other, it would become something. Now, it, in Catholic churches, especially the Catholic churches that have schools, I've seen this happen a lot, where kids grow up in the church together, they get to know people, they marry you know, other people in the church that are, they go to school together with, and you do start to get these big clans forming within Catholic churches, at least you used to. Again, it's less so now because we're, we're such a mobile society. But in tribal cultures, this was very important because there were so many tribes. And a key to survival was by forming alliances or covenants with other tribes. And how they would do that is uh, they would come in together and form this blood covenant between each other. And how they would do that is they would take an animal, they would sacrifice the animal, they'd slice the animal in half, they would lay the animal out on the path, and then the chieftains of the two tribes would pass through between the two halves of the animal. I'll try not to fall off the step. And as they passed through these, these animals, there's this animal that was cut apart, they would ritually say words that essentially meant, if I break my covenant with you, you can do to me what we did to this animal. So it, it's, it's, a, um, you know, it's, it's a stake of your life upon this, this covenant. They'll, it's a promise to guard this covenant with your life. We do the same thing in marriage, till death do us part. Although we, that, that's been dropped from the, um, from the marriage ceremony in this country, we say, and, um, as long as, I sh as long as I shall live, or something like that. They, 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 they dropped the death word out of the marriage ceremony. But this is what they did. They would split, split the animal. They would make their covenant. We are now one family, pass through. If I break this covenant, you can cut me in half just like we did this animal. Now, God makes a lot of covenants. There are a lot of covenants in the Old Testament. A particular one that we want to note is the one he makes with Abraham for the promise of his descendant. And Abraham is a hundred years old-ish. He's childless. He's, he's married to uh, Sarai, his wife. Who's, and at this point, his name is Abram. And God promises again, he's going to give him a descendant through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. His, and his descendants will be like the stars of the sky from this descendant he's going to give him. 
And God says, this will be a covenant between us. So Abraham knows how to make a covenant. He's a tribal leader, all right? And so God gives him very specific instructions, not just to split apart one animal, but several animals. Several animals. I've got the list of my notes. I don't remember all the animals that there are, but I think there's, there's an ox and there's a, a mule and there's, there's some doves and there's lots of animals that he splits open and, and lays along the road. And now he needs to walk through these animals with God. So they make this covenant. The only problem is, how do you walk through these animals with God? It's kind of tricky. So Abraham kind of sits down, he stands around for a while. He waits for God to show up. He's not sure exactly what's going to happen. Maybe he expects an angel or something. Nothing happens. So he sits down and he waits and he waits and he waits and eventually he falls asleep. While he's asleep, he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees God come as a burning censer. That's how the symbol that he sees of God in his dream is a burning censer passing between the animals alone without Abraham. What this means is that God takes it upon himself the full responsibility of the fulfillment of the covenant. It's entirely up to God. Abraham is off the hook. And so God says, I will keep this covenant. If I fail to keep this covenant, you can split me open like you did these animals. And if you fail to keep this covenant, then this is, I, will, I still will take the burden. It's all on me. Whether I break the covenant or you break the covenant, it's all on me. So when we get to Jesus, this is God becoming human so that he can take the punishment for the violation of the covenant. See, when we talk about the descendant of Abraham, through which all the nations on the earth were blessed, this descendant is not Isaac, his son. This descendant is Jesus who brings the kingdom of God to all the nations. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. And of course, man continues to violate his covenant, this covenant with God. Man does not continue to follow and to do as God does, live, live the life of a member of God's tribe. So God takes it upon himself. The covenant has been violated. Restitution must be made, and that restitution is made in Christ, in his blood. He is God in the flesh who takes upon himself the responsibility for the punishment of the covenant. It's really pretty cool when you think about it, right? So, Christ becomes that substitutionary sacrifice. Right? Just as an animal gives his life so that we can live, we can eat and live, just as the, the sacrifice can be made so that we can have spiritual life when, by, the, by the blood of the sacrificed animal giving us a spiritual life, now Christ becomes that substitutionary sacrifice through which we are able to 
receive spiritual life, eternal life. So the, the two elements of Christ's death are the sacrifice for our eternal life and the, subs and the, sub the substitution and the giving of life. Now, one of the things that I promised to do, and I'll stop and do that now, is talk about the vocabulary. I've thrown a lot of words out that are not common, but yet we use them a lot in church. And what do those mean? And how do they relate to Jesus? Well, the first one is salvation itself. We talk about salvation. Even, even among, as Catholics would talk about salvation, Protestants probably talk about it more. But it's definitely a part of all Christian theology that we are saved from destruction. We are saved from sin, which, talk about words, words and what they mean. Sin basically means anything that separates us from God. We have this, this concept of sin is something bad that we do, and that can be true. But it's really anything that separates us from God. And more often than some act that we do, it would be an internal attitude. It would be a thought. It would be a self-destructive belief about ourselves. These things separate us from what God wants us to be and what wants us to do. So sin really is that self-destruction. It's, it's evident in Adam and Eve's story through fear and shame. Remember Adam and Eve walked with God. They were pals with God before sin entered. Once sin enters, they run afraid of God. They have separated themselves from God. They are fearful of God, and they are ashamed before God. So sin is anything that separates us from God. Salvation means that God has stepped into our lives to save us from that destruction, even though it's a self-destruction. So we think about, you know, imagine, you know, you're, you're walking across the road and a, and a truck's coming. You know, here comes the Mack truck. And someone comes and shoves you out of the way so that you're spared, and then the truck flattens them, and they're gone. You have been saved, right? You've been saved. And someone came along to sacrifice themselves for you to be saved. This is salvation. Christ comes to sacrifice himself so that we can be saved. So that we can not be run over by the Mack truck. We cannot be destroyed by our rejection of God. We cannot be destroyed by our own self-destruction. We cannot be destroyed by our own, Cheryl doesn't like when I use the word stupidity, but <laughs> when we, we do things to injure ourselves, God came and stepped in the path. Christ saved us, sacrificing himself to do that. This is salvation. He, sac he gave his life so that we could live. This is salvation. Redemption is another word we pass around in church a lot. What does redemption mean? Well, again, this is a little bit of a different culture, but in, um, you know, in ancient culture, 
if you owed a debt that you could not pay, then you would be enslaved to the person you owed the debt to. And you would be enslaved to that person until you could pay the debt off, which is kind of a tricky thing because how are you gonna earn money to pay the debt off if you're a slave, right? <laughs> so once you, got, once you wound up enslaved over a debt, you were pretty much stuck there the rest of your life unless, unless a redeemer comes and pays your debt for you. This is the act of the redeemer. He buys off your debt. He gives his own, from his own storehouse, from his own funds, he pays your debt for you, and then you can be free. So when we talk about Christ being our redeemer, or we talk about the gift of redemption, this is what we're talking about. We were enslaved to the lusts of this world. We're enslaved to this desire for power. We're enslaved to, be, um, to live our lives in tremendous frustration of constantly wanting more and more and more and never being able to have it because this world never satisfies. The things of this world never satisfy. I was talking with someone the other day and he was saying to me that he began pursuing a life of uh, a very serious life in the church because he had been so successful in the world. He worked in finance, he had lots of money, he had lots of friends, he had wonderful, you know, wonderful opportunities. And he talks about being um, in one of these luxury boxes, you know, at, uh, at, a, at a ball game. And everybody's, you know, drinking and laughing and he's looking around and he says, this is the best life has to offer. And it really is not satisfying. There's nothing here. It's all fake. Everybody's, you know, we're, we're just standing around drinking, watching the ball game, having a good time, but it's not satisfying. Nothing is Nothing of significance is happening here. And so he committed his life to Christ and to the church and began to find what God had for him, where he finds satisfaction and fulfillment and peace that the world never could offer. The world can never offer that. So we were indebted, we were enslaved because of our debt to this world system and Christ purchased our freedom. He purchased our freedom and he purchased it with his blood. By his salvific act, he redeems us from our enslavement to this world system. Atonement, well, that's a tough one. Atonement, the th what atonement really is, is that God is, our affection, we owe to God. God is, God is due our affection, our love for him. But we turn and spend it on, on worldly lusts and power, and we have spent 
what we should have given to God on everything else. It's gone. Remember the story of the prodigal son. He gets the father's inheritance and he goes and wastes it. And it's all gone. What is he going to do? What do we do when we realize that we have wasted our lives, wasted our thoughts, wasted our affections on stuff that doesn't really matter? Now, in a worldly sense, say I, I break into someone's house and I steal a bunch of stuff. I steal their television set, I steal their silver, I steal their jewels, I steal all this stuff. And now I've got all of their stuff. And then I go and spend it. I sell it, I spend it, it's all gone, and I get caught. I need to make restitution. I owe this person a lot of money. How do I make restitution? How do I pay them back? Christ's atonement makes restitution for what we owe to God, for what we stole from him. It's Christ's atonement. He makes restitution for what, for the affection, for the love, for the grace that we have stolen from God. And that is atonement. Well, here's another one, another big word, expiation. Expiation, we see all these theological words and they actually do have meanings, but we usually don't define them. Expiation basically is to be washed, is to be made clean. Mankind becomes filthy with sin because of our rejection of God's love. God loves us and we reject his love. And this makes us spiritually filthy so we must be washed, Our, the sins must be washed and only Christ's blood can make us clean again. Scripture says, white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make you white as snow. It's a beautiful, beautiful concept. Christ's blood washes us and makes us clean. Expiation. And so these are, the, these are the words that we use to describe this act of salvation. So we are redeemed, we are saved, we are redeemed, we are cleansed. We are, our, the restitution is made. And in fact, from the cross, this is one of the most fascinating things, from the cross, Jesus makes a proclamation, which is usually translated, it is finished. The seven, one of the seven words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. And what that word is, in Greek, tetelestai is the, is the word, and what that word is, is what we would say is paid in full. It's what they would write across. If you owed somebody money and you paid them off, they would write across the, the, the bill, tetelestai, it is paid in full. And this is what Christ does through his substitutionary sacrifice. He pays in full everything we owed to God. It's a powerful, powerful thing. But here's the question. How do we effect that into our lives? How do we take this wonderful gift that Christ gives us through his salvation, his redemption, atonement, expiation. How do we take that into our lives and make that us? How do we do this? 
In one sense, it is an act of our will to trust God, to trust Christ, to believe not just what, who he was and what he did, but to trust him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do my commandments, you will follow my commandments. Why? Because we trust him. We believe he is the son of God. We believe he is God in the flesh. What he had to say is probably important. It's probably something we should follow. We should live in obedience to what he has to say because he's God speaking to us. So at, at one level, it is an act of our will to trust and follow God. Trust Jesus and follow him. And Jesus says this is a daily act. It's really a moment by moment act because we're always constantly faced with this decision. Am I going to do what God wants me to do? Am I going to do what my flesh, my body, my, my own desires want me to do? And so there's this constant struggle going on within us. And it's the act of our will to follow God that makes this work for us. But there's also a sacramental level and the sacrament is extremely important. Now in the Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments. We're gonna get, we'll talk more about sacraments um, later. It comes up in a couple of months. But there is one central sacrament upon which all other sacraments are based and all other sacraments really are just a way of us touching that one central sacrament, which is God becoming flesh, the incarnation, Christ, God, God came to us to give himself to us, to give himself for us. And because the sacrament is God becoming flesh, in every sacrament, there are two elements. There is the God element or the heavenly element, and there's the flesh element, the earthly element. There is earth stuff and there is God stuff. And the two come together, they intersect at the sacramental level. So in baptism, we have earth stuff, water and oil, right? Earth stuff. And when, but when we undergo the sacrament of baptism, we are adopted as God's children and sealed with the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's the God stuff. In baptism, God adopts us as his own. Baptism is a ritual rebirth. Back when they used to dunk people, and I think in the Christian church, they still do dunk people, and they do in the Baptist church and some other churches, um, when they dunk people, there is this tremendous sense of symbolism that they are being immersed, they're dying, they're going into the earth, right? They're being into the water, they're being, they're being immersed, going, experiencing Christ's death sacramentally in the water, and then they rise up out of the water. It's experience, and it's experience of Christ's death and resurrection in a sacramental way. There's some really beauties, beautiful things about the way baptism used to be done. You know, it used to be done naked, by the way, which was really kind of um, cool. But 
uh, it not, doesn't work too well in our culture. But nonetheless, you would go to baptism and you would be dressed in your old rags, right? Your old clothes. And then you would take them all off. You would go into the water stark naked. You'd be baptized. You'd come up out of the water and then they put on a fresh, clean, white garment. So there's this tremendous symbolism, this touching of what God, you know, this physical touch of what God is doing in the stripping off of our old nature, the stripping off of our sin, the cleansing of the water, the death and rebirth, the resurrection, we're put on a brand new white garment. It's a beautiful, beautiful symbol. Although the whole naked thing doesn't work too well in our culture. But that was the way it was originally done. Now we bring kids, they're already in their white garment, you know, and we bless and we, we baptize them, we anoint them with oil, and it's all good. But you know, and it, it, it works just as well as the old way, but still the, the symbolism is not as as deeply visible as it used to be. So in baptism, we have the earth stuff of, of water and oil. We have the God stuff of adoption as children of God and being sealed by the Holy Spirit. In the Eucharist, these are the only two sacraments I'm going to talk about today. In the Eucharist, we have the earth stuff of bread and wine. But we have the God stuff of, God, of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. So how do we appropriate this sacrifice of Christ's blood into our lives? We do that in the Eucharist. We make, when we come to the Eucharistic table, we make that act of will that we are giving ourselves to Christ. Christ is giving himself to us he is giving to us his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He is, it is a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ. It just says he gave his body, blood, soul, and divinity at the cross. He gives his body, blood, soul, and divinity to us in the Eucharist. We receive him. And we say thank you, which is what the word Eucharist means. Thank you. So in the Old Testament... They used to sacrifice bull, goats, lambs, all these different animals. But the scripture is very clear that the, the blood of bulls, goats, lambs, all these animals never worked to wash away sin, expiate, right? Never worked to wash away the filth of our sin. The only sacrifice that has ever washed away the filth of man's sin is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's why we call it the once for all time sacrifice. One sacrifice for all time. However, since in the Old Testament they existed before God came into history, they prophetically participate in Christ's once for all sacrament. through the sacrifice of these animals, to see the shedding of blood, to see the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is how they would participate, that prophetically God is going to come and do this once and for all. And now that we exist after this event has taken place in time, in history, 
We reflect back. We do this in memory of Christ. And we say thank you. And in doing that, we daily take up our cross to put to death our selfishness, to put to death our greed, to put to death our lust, to put to death our desire for power and just simply surrender to Christ's love. Allow Christ's love to wash us, make us clean, allow his mercy and compassion to cleanse us. We daily take up that cross, put into death those things of our own being that separate us from God. His passion empowers us to embrace our own passion. And the Eucharist is a celebration of his passion through thanksgiving. One more thing I'll share quickly, then we'll wrap this up. I'll go for questions. Why did Christ have to sacrifice such a gruesome death? It was all just about him shedding his blood, couldn't even have done it a lot more painless way than being beaten and flogged and um, carrying a cross and having nails driven through his, his hands and his feet and hanging there on a cross until he suffocated from the weight of his own body. The reason Christ suffered so greatly to show us how much he loved us so that whatever we face in life, and all of us have troubles in life, everybody, every life's got some good times and bad times. We all face troubles, all face troubles, all suffer grief, all suffer loss. Whatever we go through, Christ can embrace us and say, I know how you feel. I have done this, I've, done, I've been through this myself. Whatever abuse we suffer, whatever grotesqueness happens in our life, we see Christ being betrayed by his, by his friends, abandoned, rejected, falsely accused, executed, even stripped naked and hung up for the whole world to see on the roadside. People walk past him, laugh and jeer at the naked man hanging on a cross. Whatever we go through, we know that we have a friend in Jesus, an elder brother who can say, I know how you feel. I've been there. I will share in your pain. You share in my passion. I will share in yours. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus never promised us that life was going to be hunky-dory. In fact, he promised the exact opposite. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. But he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So whatever we face, wherever we go, when we get to that point, we know Christ is there. He has been there with us before. And we know that it is all swallowed up in eternity. Christ has overcome the world. 
This world with all its pains and troubles will pass away. God's love will abide with us forever. So that's really all I had to share tonight on what is this thing we call salvation? Um, why, what, why, what's the whole thing about Christ's covenant and blood? And um, so, at this, so now, I'm sitting on the stool, my legs have been falling asleep. Um, we'll do questions. And Cheryl, how about if I give you charge of this microphone? Who has a question tonight? Questions, comments? <laughs> well, I just, I don't have a question yet, but I will. Okay. <laughs> because I normally do. But I do think, um, you know, I mean, I kind of know what you're preaching, but... You've heard me before. I've heard you before, <laughs> and I've done my own. You know, God's, God's walked with... I've mm -hmm. walked with God for a while. But, um, you know, the fact of him and that terrible death, like you said, and he's he's experienced it all and if there's anything maybe he wasn't raped but yet when those things happen that is our that is our participation mm -hmm. in his sacrifice sorry <laughs> that is his participation that's our participation in the sacrifice and then i was thinking about how we say offer it up Mm -hmm. You know, and whenever we have agony in our life, and I only really do this with physical pain, mm -hmm. but I guess I could do it with any time I feel rejected or betrayed or abandoned, right? I never ha actually have done that now that I'm saying this. But if, so what I do with that is like, um, I'll just take that pain and, and I'll just like in my mind attach it to the cross with him. Mm -hmm. Like, and then it's, there and I'm sharing in his um, his act of redemption and salvation, and I actually I mean it doesn't actually sometimes the pain goes away, but and maybe it's something like your knee the pain might go away right then but the knee's still injured, you know there's injury still might be there but there is some kind of a, a satisfaction that happens in my spirit for doing that, and I actually feel like. Otherwise, it's like, it's such a waste. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> Otherwise, mm -hmm. what a waste this, this pain is, you know, and this, this hurt and everything. And so it gives it some purpose that actually can be that he would, you know, use my pain along with his for the salvation of the world. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you're talking about Christ not being raped, but um, he definitely experienced sexual abuse by being hanged like being publicly hung out naked for everybody to see. You know, he, he definitely, 
you know, he's been he's been through it. Mm -hmm. But there was something you said. Um, let's see. Here comes the hard question. <laughs> well, there are two times you use this word, and I wanted I was surprised that you use that word there. So let me just see here. Christ sacrificed himself so that we can be saved, not destroyed by our, our, by our rejection of God or the things that we do to injure ourselves. And then expiation, to be washed, made clean. Mankind is filthy because of sin, because of our rejection of God. Mm -hmm. So rejection? or just our will to be separate from him? I mean, well, did he really, is it really about saving us from our rejection of him or from our separation from him, which is the bad thoughts, the attitudes, the, the, the seven deadly sins, gluttony, lust, all those other things, you know, is it really rejection? Well, I think that the, the choice to be separated is rejection. So if, if someone chooses to be separated from somebody, they rejected them. So you could, so in, in my idea, my concept, they're, they're synonymous. Um, one of the things about, you know. So when the, I sin, I'm rejecting God? Is that what you're saying? Or I'm just putting a veil. I've always seen it as I put something between me and God, but I've never seen it as me like, pushing him away and rejecting him and turning away from him. That would be rejection. Rejection mm -hmm. to me is, I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. See you later, God. But, but my sinful thoughts and acts, I thought, were a, just a separation. And there was like that veil between mm -hmm. me and God in my heart. Yeah. Well, I, was, I, would say, I would still say that's rejection. I mean, we're dealing with, with definitions here. But if, if you slam the door in someone's face, you stay on that side of the door, I'm staying on this side of the door. That's a rejection in my, my concept. Or you say, put up a veil, put up a tent, whatever we do to separate ourselves from someone. If I choose to separate myself from someone, I've rejected them. So that's, I mean, that's, that's you know, but when I, I talk about these different words that we use, salvation, redemption, atonement, expiation, it's all one salvation. It's all one acceptance of God taking us as we are, accepting us and loving us into become something new, something better, something free. But it's different aspects of it. You know, just looking at it from a slightly different angle, different facets of the jewel, so that you know, we could use these different words to see, see it from a slightly different angle, but it's all the same act of Christ restoring us to God. We reject, you know, in the biblical narrative, Adam and Eve rejected God in the garden. And Christ comes as the new Adam to accept us. We rejected God, but God came to embrace us, to accept us, to restore us. I just want to comment on um, something else that was pretty cool is that I never really understood that walk you did with the sacrifice of the animals and how 
first it was understood that they were sacrificing themselves for us to survive mm -hmm. physically, but then later it became that spiritual significance. And we knew about the Passover, of course, but that whole walk up to that is really pretty cool. It's really, I think it's just awesome to see the evolution of God's revelation to man of himself. Because there's, it is, it's evolved with, it has, yeah. with, with man's understanding. Mm -hmm. It's really pretty awesome. And I love that whole concept. To me, it's helpful. Our faith comes from somewhere. And it's helpful to understand where it came from, how it developed into what it is, so we can, we can understand it. Otherwise, we just toss these words out without meaning. And um, not that that's bad, but we can certainly grow in faith if we understand what, what, what all this means. Historical context is always a good thing mm -hmm. when we're learning something. Irene. By the way, congratulations on your, um, your, your test today. Could the possibility of, I understand you're saying the word rejection, and I do agree with you. I'm just looking at my family history and I have two grandchildren that I think reject God, not because they know him, but because they haven't met him yet. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I... In other words, they were born in the Catholic Church. They have Catholic sure. parents, but they're not involved in their... He's not involved in their salvation. And I, I saw very clearly when I visit them, they reject him, but not because they know him, but I, because I think they don't know him. Mm -hmm. am, am I wrong? No, you're absolutely correct. And that's a key reason I wanted to do these classes, because there is so much bad information out there about God, about the church, and people are rejecting their concept of God, but it's a false concept. It's not God that they're rejecting. They're rejecting a false concept of God, which we would reject too. Um, different, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a friend who uh, was a missionary in uh, Arab, cult Arab cultures, and I've, you know, worked in Arab cultures, although not as a missionary. Um, and if you ask an Arab, a Muslim, what is a Christian? And he says, he'll say, it's someone who drinks alcohol. Because in Islam, you're not allowed to drink alcohol, but the Christians are allowed to drink alcohol. So in their minds, what's a Christian? What's someone who drinks alcohol? You know, we, we develop these bad concepts. And there, we begin with, with the understanding of the nature of God because so many people think God is someone who sits up there in heaven somewhere and, you know, and plays with us, toys with mankind, makes decisions and wipes people out and you know, sends, sends floods and does all these, these terrible things. Well, who wants to believe in a God like that? 
Who wants to accept that? So we need to understand who God is, what God is like, what he is doing. And so that's why I wanted to do these classes so that we could begin to get a clear understanding of who God is. And um, so that's, yeah, so you're absolutely right. So sometimes you have people that reject God because they don't have a clear understanding of God. We need to teach them. So I'm teaching you guys so that you guys can teach the rest of the world. <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> Change the world, huh? That's right. <laughs> so that really goes right along with, um, I mean, the really kind of the next level then. Once we understand who God is, the true who God really is, I think of, I love that homily on Sunday about the wise men, you know, Epiphany, um, that it's that, that, that moment in history was a pulling together of the plan from the first let there be light mm -hmm. spoken by God. That was like the culmination. It wasn't just that Jesus came to the Gentiles. And so all that history, thousands and thousands and thousands of years up to the time the wise men got there, when the constellations were doing their movement, and then there would be somebody to watch them, and then to the be there at that time, and to be, you know, it's really neat when we have a good understanding of God who God truly is, then to see that whole mm -hmm. expanse. And when we say he knows the, the end from the beginning, and the wise men were right in the middle. You know, that's awesome. And so are we. And so his plan keeps going on, and his plan is, of course, ultimately, that we are his friends forever. You know, and that is just an awesome thing. So it's, we need this foundation first so that we can appreciate that right but we need to get that foundation for sure yeah in fact for those of you who uh liked that homily in, uh, last week I, in my e-newsletter even e email that's coming out tomorrow i guess i'll have links to the movie about the star of bethlehem which goes through the, the whole background there and also a link to dr james kennedy's discussion on how the Zodiac was originally intended to preach the gospel, teach the gospel to people. So you have those links, you can watch those uh, on YouTube. Okay, forgive me. Okay, this is going to be a little out of left field. <clears throat> it's hopefully easy. But you briefly mentioned about Abraham and his name changing. Yes. And I know that happens with several people in the Old Testament, is there a like consistent meaning to that? So like when his name went from Abram to Abraham, why did it change? And is there a significance to that? That's a very good question. Yes, there is. Um, when it went from Abram to Abraham, it um, Abram, as I, as I recall, means, um, Father and Abraham is exalted father, father, father of nations. It, it, it expands who he becomes. 
And this happens many, many times. Yes, Sarah becomes princess, or Sarai is princess. Oh my goodness gracious, I used to know this. Um, it, it's a, it's yeah. There's an H being added, but that's not the that's not the significance. The names actually have a, a slightly different meaning, and I did know this, and I can't remember it. That's okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll have to look them back up there because that is a but that's a good point. But yeah, the names do change, and we see them changing also uh, throughout the scriptures. Many many people's names are changed. Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, Saul becomes, you know, the Apostle Paul. Simon becomes Peter, or Cephas becomes Peter. Um, yeah, there's there are lots of, of uh, there's there's lots of that. In fact, we but we practice that also when uh, people are confirmed. We go through the, the sacrament of confirmation. They'll often take on a saint's name. They'll add a, another name to theirs to take on that saint's name. If you become a religious. Uh, you're a monk or a nun, you take on a new religious name. So, yes, it's, it's part of the tradition. And uh, there's a lot of beauty to that. Jesus says in Revelation that he has given each of us a name that only he knows. <laughs> so there's, there's this beauty of Christ knows us more better than we know ourselves. But in the ancient world, a name is extremely important. Um, and in most and in most tribal cultures, name is extremely important. It really speaks to who a person is, to uh, what their name is. But I'll look that up. Sarah, uh, Sarai, and Sarah, and Abram, and Abraham, and I'm, I'm sorry that I've forgotten too much stuff in my old age. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was fascinated by a, a couple things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think your comment about your children kind of got me thinking about it. But I, I think from, you know, if you're exposed, Laura, you went to school in a like church for a little, like, you know, Catholic school for a little while. So a lot of exposure. Um, you know, I went to church here and there, but I, I wasn't a Sunday, every Sunday going to church. And then I think... There's a lot of stuff out there that paints the, the wrong picture. Um, there's bad people that claim to be holy church-going people that are hateful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's that whole, that whole church that was around here, Fred Phelps, maybe, huh? is that it? The picket, they have the, the hateful signs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you might see that and you might think, not for me. Um, and so I think there's some, some misconceptions around there, but what I'm kind of trying to tie back to what you said is that the word sin, you hear sin, it has a negative connotation, you immediately go to vice, you immediately start thinking of the worst types of sin, mm -hmm. but you're, what you're saying is that sin is almost inherent in man, mm -hmm. and it's not... Not that it's good, but it is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's 
the way a lot of people think about it. And so, you know, I, I guess I don't know what I'm getting at, but it's a thought-provoking concept because I've always classified it as being very negative, bad, uh, but what the way that you, you know, everybody's sense inherently That's right. almost. That's right, and most of us don't even know how we're sinning. Um, a lot of it, but, but it's that separation for God. Anything that separates us from God, St. Paul writes, anything that's not of faith is sin. Anything, any act we do that is not an expression of our trust and belief in God and Christ is something that's separating us from Christ. So either we're moving towards Christ or we're separating from Christ. And this is, this is kind of a constant thing. But yeah, the, the, the concept that man, mankind always naturally flows towards selfishness, my own will instead of God's will. Um, that's what the church calls original sin, which is one of those things that gets, has been terribly misunderstood many, many times. But all, all it is really is, is that mankind tends to, to desire his own will above God's will for him. And that is so pervasive. Even Jesus struggles with that. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays to his father and says, do I have to do this? He's looking at this passion. He's about to be rejected on that very night by, uh, by Judas and, and begin his, his, his torture. He says, do I really have to do this? And then he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And that is the defeat of sin. Not my will, but thy will be done. Because um, something that's helped me to understand more what sin is, is, you know, when we go to confession and then we are grieved because we have offended God and that offense is, is our sin. So like you just said, anything that's not a faith, like Paul said, anything that's not a faith, you know, and is an offense to the one who was loved mercy, justice, truth. So anything that is not that is an offense to him. And so we all have it. And that, that's from Adam and Eve. That's, from the, that's, that's the fall of man, choosing self over, over God. And... Um, hmm? That's John Pelagi. He probably has a key to give me. Okay, good. <laughs> Go on down, John. So anyway, that kind of helped me to understand more when I'm sinning because otherwise I think I grew up with the concept of sin was when I hurt somebody, did something bad against somebody. And it is because every single person is created in God's image, but that's not all there is. We think of murder and, you know, just everything, all those, all those, like you said, those acts but the reality is the choice within us to be thinking our own thoughts instead of those thoughts of Thanks. faith towards God, our creator, okay. you know, um, hmm? is, um, is really oh, what it's... Okay. 
what it's about. It really helped me. I mean, only recently have I really finally like, oh, yeah, I'm offending God. You know? <laughs> what a sad thing for me to do. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's just kind of more food for thought on that. Yeah. And, you know, if we... And the other thing is self-forgiveness. Because we know that unforgiveness really separates us from God. Um, and he, he says that if, you know, if I won't forgive you if you don't forgive so-and-so. But we have to forgive ourselves. And when I've practiced doing this a lot in the last, like, year and a half, man, there's a freedom to that. Not only, so it's not only just asking for forgiveness, but just like I forgive somebody who offends me, then I have to forgive myself for offending God. And boy, there's a freedom in that. It's like the last veil. Mm -hmm. Here, you have a question about compulsion? Yeah, no, I was, just, I was just asking the question. You know, I've, I've always heard the comparison, you know, when you're in your young, in your 20s and your 30s, your compulsions are really strong, but, you know, you should work for your virtues instead of compulsions. Mm -hmm. So how, my question is, is compulsion a, a possibility of sin? Well, a, a compulsion is typically a desire of my will, what I of want. my will. My want, what I want, not what God wants. Mm -hmm. I suppose you could have a compulsion for what God wants, but I haven't met that person yet. <laughs> we, we tend to want what, I tend to want what I want. Yeah, we're about 10 minutes over time here, so we ought to wrap this up. We started late, that's true. All right, so let us um, close with a, a Hail Mary. And um, then we'll be all be back next week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming, and thank everybody on the...